Westmount to take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans 9. Romans 9. Let's just continue turning our attention, affection, understanding, everything to the Lord and worship. And now we pray as we learn and are encouraged and challenged and built up in him. Romans chapter 9. The story is told of a mysterious wealthy billionaire that walked into a jail courtyard while the men were on break and at ease. Hardly noticed by any, the rich man put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a piece of paper. Silently, but intentionally, he pointed directly at a few men, called them by name, and the prison guards ushered them forward. As the few selected inmates came forward, they were told that their sentence had been taken care of and they were now fully pardoned. With tears streaming down their faces, and still with hardly any noticing the few inmates removing their prison overalls, the men left the confines of the prison. Later that day, the men were interviewed and asked about what happened. One question from the gallery was posed this way. Are you comfortable to be here while all the other inmates, surely your friends, remain in prison and are victims of injustice, not chosen by this man's whims? The now freed inmates looked at each other for a moment with more tears flowing before one spoke and said this, Victims? Injustice? Surely it is only eyes of limited and misleading vision that considers our friends condemned criminals as victims and and sees receiving what they're due as injustice. He continued, No. We all, us here before you, as well as our friends that remained condemned inside, we all received a just sentence. And for some, that continues. However, for some reason, he paused, some unknown, amazing reason. We before you will likely never know that reason. For some reason, we were the recipients of mercy. And then he finished with this. If there is a sense of injustice, it is that we do not remain condemned. As we should be. If there is a sense of injustice, it is that now we are free. If there's a sense of injustice, it's that we did nothing to warrant freedom. And if there's a sense of injustice, then let it be said on us and not of them. Continue our study in Romans 9 and pick it up in verse 14. Look with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, 
and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we pray as we do each week and especially this morning, you would give us eyes to see. We beg for hearts to receive. We beg for understanding today, Lord, and as always, that we would live in light of this amazing truth that we get to study this morning. Oh God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, one of the difficulties with our reasoning at times, one of the difficulties with our reasoning at times is that it is infused with human wisdom, democratic ideals, and a very broken, unrealistic sense of equality. And you know this equality. What is it today? Equality at all costs. Equality at all costs. For all, for everyone. The result for many, and we're talking in the church now, is that we consider salvation, here it is, as something that we all ought to have. We consider salvation as a right for all. The problem with that, of course, is that the Bible never presents salvation that way. Is that not true? It never presents salvation that way. It may feel good to think that. Right? And we imbibe that from the culture around us, but the, the Bible never says that. Salvation, biblically, is a divine privilege sovereignly bestowed by God on those that he chooses and elects to give faith to, and faith to respond to him rightly, says God's word. Scripture, as seen in the passage that we just read, never presents the idea that God chooses us based on our choosing of him first. No, beloved, the reality is always the other way around. We choose him because he chose us first. Just as we love him, why? Because he loved us first, 1 John 4, 19. Westmount, let's understand this as we begin this morning. The word of God never compromises on this, ever. In fact, as we will see in our passage, the Apostle Paul actually emphasizes God's sovereignty and salvation. As such, for the Christian, and as others have rightly said, passages like this one, open in front of you, passages like this remind us that it is vitally important not to build one's theology on personal feelings and perceptions of what we think ought to be, but upon biblical revelation of the character, purpose, and revealed will of God as found in his inspired, inerrant living word. In fact, we take our cue from Paul in this passage. He does not refer to man's impressions or human reasoning on what salvation should be like, does he? In fact, if Paul has any reference in this passage, what is it? God's Word. He points us back to God's Word. That's all. He doesn't go anywhere else. He doesn't say, reason with me. Let's go to God's Word to see who God is and His purpose and plan. Here repeatedly, we commented on this a couple weeks ago, Paul, in this section, very vital section, repeatedly, over and over again, is going to go to the Old Testament to confirm God's purpose for Israel, his chosen people. And he's going to confirm, and we'll see this here as we continue to work through it, that God is sovereign in salvation. He's always been sovereign in all things, but certainly in salvation. And here, as we've been studying, God's sovereignty in saving the remnant the remnant, remember, of Israel within Israel, as we looked at last week. The ongoing rejection by most of Israel and Messiah 
What did we say? What does the word say? That is not evidence that the word of God, the Old Testament promises, have failed. Recall the thesis. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Beloved, God's word remains. God's word still stands, as it always has and always will, just as God remains God. He remains sovereign, as the Old Testament shows repeatedly. It does, that does not change with the coming of Christ and the continued rejection of him by his chosen people. No, in fact, that rejection, as we have seen and will continue to see, is within, under, and a product of the sovereign plan and will of Almighty God. Paul thus turns not only to the Word of God, but he turns to God himself as evidence. This is what we'll see this week in these verses. How do we know the Word of God has not failed? Because God remains God. This is what we're going to see. Because God is God. God never changes. Malachi 3, verse 6. He remains just. He remains merciful. It's always been, it is, and always will be. Such Paul provides us here with a consideration of his nature and his attributes. We'll see this in this passage. First, a careful examination, this is where he goes first, of God's justice and God's mercy. That's our first point, justice and mercy. Look with me at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. What shall we say then? That is a very familiar question in Romans some six times. You saw it in chapter 7, verse 7, along with chapter 8, 31 for that section. You're going to see it again if you look at chapter 9, verse 30. Right? A very familiar question. This is the way Paul right, is taking these inspired words and helping us see and think through them. What shall we say then? In other words, provoking the response. What shall we say then to God's choosing of Isaac and not Ishmael? What shall we say then to God's love for Jacob and hatred of Esau? What shall we say then to the fact that these things were determined by God before they were even born? Remember verse 11. What shall we say then to these things? That is the question. We've seen Paul anticipating protests before in this letter, and here again, here the retort might be, right? It might be this, verse 14. Well, if that's true, Paul, all you've said, if that's true, then what? God is unjust. Maybe you said that, tracking in the study. If it's true, God is unjust. So, injustice on God's part? Paul says again strongly ten times in Romans, by no means perish the thought that any, especially one of faith, accuse God of injustice. That's what Paul is saying. As Jehoshaphat charged the judges in Judah, remember in 2 Chronicles 19.7, he said this, Consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. And then listen to what he says. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. In other words, as God is, so you go and judge Israel that way. So by no means, it reminds us to be very careful before we accuse God similarly. Church, the issue here in Romans 9 is not injustice on God's part. 
God has always been just. His ways are always righteous. Let's just consider one portion of God's word, the inspired words in the Psalms. Just listen to this, Psalm 48.10, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm 71.19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Psalm 119.137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Psalm 119.142, your righteousness is righteous forever. That is eternal. It always has been and always will be. God is righteous. He is just. So what God does with Isaac or Ishmael, Jacob or Esau, believer, you or me or anyone, any human being, let us be clear, whatever he does is in perfect accord with his righteousness, with his justice. I trust that is clear for all of us. If we let our finite, limited minds lead us versus the word of God, we will end up launching this accusation and probably end up in a very bad place with respect to our approach to God. We may not say it, but we think it. God is unjust. So what's the issue then that could cause Paul's readers and us to question? What's the issue here? Let's dig in. Well, let us take a step back and consider, I pray, some helpful foundations. Number one, look at the text with me. Again, we always let the text guide us. Paul's response, notice to the accusation of injustice, notice what Paul does. He zeroes in on mercy. Do you see this? Not judgment. In fact, he doesn't really refer to judgment at all. What he's simply going to do is show us mercy. Just listen to his response in verse 15, 16. We're going to come back to this, but just listen. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Three times he references mercy. Two times he references something synonymous like compassion. He turns to mercy. In other words, we could say, who's talking about injustice? Let me show you mercy. Secondly, God choosing anyone, when you think about Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob or Esau, listen, God choosing anyone at all is a matter of mercy, not injustice, right? The fact that he would choose anyone, it's a matter of mercy. This is the point so often missed with protests to the sovereignty of God and salvation. Listen, what did we learn in this letter, Westmount, in chapter 5? All mankind, that is Jew and Gentile, condemned with and in Adam. Do you remember that in chapter 5? Our natural default position is what? Condemnation, right? That's the default for all humanity. We're not a blank slate. And, And part of our problem is when we forget that and want to give everyone some goodness or Uh, some leverage that the Bible doesn't, we get ourselves in trouble. More, we only confirm our nature and guilt by emerging from the womb, and what do we do? As soon as we can gain our faculties, what's some of the first things we do when we come out of the womb? We sin, right? We sin. Thus, we're thrice condemned, as we learned in this letter earlier. That's our default. So, and if we could get a picture in our mind, we are all on a subsequent natural, logical conveyor belt. It starts in the womb, 
and it ends in hell. That's the conveyor belt all humanity's on. That's the default, right? All of us. And more, that is just. It's just, right? It's earned. That hell-bound, you shall... You will surely die that God promised, Genesis 2.17, and God upholds for all mankind is perfect justice on the part of God. Now listen, with that image in your mind, now if one was to come along like God and pluck us from that earned plight, and more, not just pluck us and then ignore our penalty and condemnation, just pluck us and make us free, but what if they came along, plucked us, and took on that, where we're going and what we deserve. And they took it on themselves, right? What if someone did that? They didn't just erase it, they bore it. If someone did that for some hellbound, it doesn't stand to accuse God of injustice, does it? Why? Well, for one, the people that remain are not experiencing injustice because they did not have their condemnation removed and eternal destiny changed, right? It doesn't change their their stead. No, they actually are still experiencing perfect justice. Yes, justice remains. And secondly, the people that are plucked from condemnation did not just see, as we mentioned, their penalty vanish. They had it taken on and paid by the one plucking them. And more, the focus should be on those plucked and the mercy they received. That's the focus in any account, isn't it? They received mercy. That's it. What's in view here then is not injustice by God. Listen, justice remains, right? Justice remains as they continue on. What's in view here then is not injustice by God, but here it is, beloved. It's the mercy of God. Can we change our focus? It's the mercy of God. This is Paul's point. What a merciful God. So, The questions here stem from a confusion between God's justice and God's mercy. Let's not do that. Justice remains served. What is considered here for the remnant in Israel, and by application, Christian, you and me, is this, that God sovereignly, freely bestows mercy. That's the point. Do you see it? That's the point, that he would even do that. Oh, how often the mercy of God is just simply missed in this glorious passage. Far too many quarrels. If it's fair that God passes over or that some are not chosen. Versus this reality that we miss. And some have said this. I only repeat it. The marvel that God chooses anyone at all to be saved. Have you thought about that today? It's a marvel that God chooses anyone given what we all deserve. Beloved, no human being is treated unjustly if they're left to receive what they have earned. Can I say that again? No human being is treated unjustly if they're left to receive what they've earned. We understand this in every other economy we have. But when it comes to salvation, we quibble. We we, we want our lives run this way. We just don't want our souls managed that way. Think of clemency, presidency. No one is crying injustice for the other prisoners who are not released when the president gives his clemency. If anything, what, like we saw recently with recent clemency, 
granted in the States, right? Injustice is declared for who? Those who are released. That's the cry. How in the world can they be released? And here, as we've learned in Romans chapter 5, more than human clemency, what is in view here is divine mercy, which is not ignoring and erasing the penalty. No, again, this is that penalty removed from the convict and placed upon another who bears it fully. Here, the wrath of God borne by Jesus Christ for the elect. Penalty paid, justice preserved. So this is not an issue of injustice. It reminds us that mercy here, this brings us to a third foundation we'd see here. Mercy here is not something we initiate. This is another key foundation in justice and mercy. Mercy, beloved, listen to me, is not something we initiate. Or I would submit to you that we can, can we? The decision of mercy is God's and God's alone. No one has the right or the power to grant mercy to themselves. Just as no prisoner has the power to decide to grant clemency and mercy to himself, or what? They all would, wouldn't they? I'm good to go, right? So too and more in the heavenlies, the decision and initiation of mercy is all God. And that's where Paul takes us next. Look at verse 15. This is precisely his point. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is the initiator. God's the executor here. Those familiar words, you may pause and say, those are familiar words. They are indeed. We've been in Exodus before in this study. Of course, we have studied the book of Exodus. And let's turn there with Paul to Exodus 33. Always good to see the the context in which Paul is taking us. Exodus 33, of course, little introduction here. Again, beloved, because we've studied this, this is the golden calf incident in these chapters. God, his wrath is burning on the nation of Israel for their transgression, right? And we see this very, very clearly, especially in chapter 33, 12 to 16, Right, But then this, that's Moses' intercession coming off of the wrath of God. But then we need to see this going into verse 18 to 19. The Lord said to Moses, after Moses gives his appeal for the nation of Israel in light of the wrath of God, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, verse 19, here it is, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, God chooses to work through Moses' intercession here. But consider this account, the decision ultimately for Israel to be spared is whose? It's God's, his sovereign choice to spare Israel. Moses can appeal, he can intercede, but ultimately it is God. God says, this is my decision. Mercy is God's decision. Mercy is by the sovereign choice of God. Which means, mercy is completely dependent on God's will. He bestows, he withholds. Of course, if we had more time... We would see some connective tissue here with mercy that's rooted to the promise given to Abraham and so on. 
so much here. We could do that, but we just time betrays us. We would see his faithfulness, God's faithfulness, working in perfect, sovereign concert with his mercy. And such is God. We'll return to Exodus shortly, but for now, let's go back to Romans 9. At least we see the context in which Paul is referring to, where the decision to bestow mercy on Israel in wake of the golden calf was all Yahweh, all God. And this is what Paul is referring to. And Paul is going to cap this first response to the accusation of injustice on God's part with this conclusion in verse 16. Look at it with me. He says this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is not unjust. God is merciful. And God's mercy is unconditional and free. That means, as Paul concludes, Mercy remains mercy precisely because it's not dependent on us at all. Beloved, you know this naturally. That's what makes mercy mercy, isn't it? It's not dependent on you at all. This is the vital definitional hedge around mercy. I mean, mercy that is granted to someone condemned because of conditions met, such as good behavior, is not mercy but parole. Not the mercy of God. The mercy of God, beloved, look at verse 16, depends not on human will. That is human desire or human purpose. That's what's going on there. Or exertion, which means literally running, doing, working. It cannot be clearer, right? God decides on whom he will bestow mercy. This right there in the verse, plain and simple. And when God bestows mercy on Isaac, Jacob, David, Paul, you, me, It is completely dependent, not on us, but on God, who is all-merciful. Can we pause this morning, Christian? How do you respond to that? I mean, if you're tracking in Romans, you just need to stop for a moment. And I ask you something this morning. How do you respond to that? Do you still have protests about that? Are you just surrendering to the joy that says, thank you, God. You're merciful to me. I pray that's what you're saying in your heart. You're not looking to get into a debate and thinking about all the things you're studying and reading in the two sides. No, just praise God. Maybe you're sitting here and maybe you're just wanting to think through, well, wait a minute, it can't be that simple. And I might ask you this, do you want conditions on mercy? Is that what you're looking for? Do you want conditions on mercy? Do you say, okay, I see it's mercy, not injustice, but I still need to see the connection between who God bestows mercy on. There must be a reason. Yes, there is a reason. There is a reason, beloved. There is a reason why it's you and not others. Did you know that? There is a reason. And do you know what it is? Because God is mercy. That's the reason. God is mercy. Because God is sovereign in mercy. That's the reason. His mercy in and of himself is sovereign and free. That's it. To the redeemed, that is more than satisfying, isn't it? It's more than satisfying. 
is not for us to fret over why God will summon not others, only for us to praise God for our salvation and to pray for the salvation of others. That's the response. That's not only the fitting response, it's the only effective response, by the way. Questioning, accusing, debating only robs God of praise and robs us of time petitioning God for those that are not yet called. Even more, beloved, anxiety builds. We wring our hands wanting to add choice and conditions and cleverness. But the point of texts like this is to make clear we have absolutely no part in this at all. None. Can you give praise for the mercy of God? Can you give praise? You have no part in it at all. It's all Him. God is justice, God is mercy, and in both, His will is sovereign. And Christian, by the way, along with praise, this truth of the sovereignty of God and mercy must fuel trust. He plucked you. He placed you in his son. What does that mean for your eternal destiny? You will never, ever leave your union with Christ. Because if it depended on you, well, you you know how that ends, right? If it depended on you. Yes, it's all about the God of justice and the God of mercy. Please, let's see that. Next up. Not only justice and mercy, power and mercy. Paul takes us back once again to the book of Exodus. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now before we turn to the Old Testament again, to Exodus again, let's ensure we observe rightly here. Let's just make some observations just on this one verse. Verse 17, it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh. Did you notice that? Moses' words equals scripture, almost a personification of the words to Pharaoh. This is the word in the beginning to Abraham. Here through Moses, the words of Moses, of course, given to Pharaoh. Note the word. The word. Scripture, consider the power of God through word to announce words through the mouth of Moses in 16th century B.C. What kind of words are these to have them resonate 1,500 years later here in Rome? And maybe 2,000 years later here in Peterborough. The scripture, this text then says to Moses in that Egyptian court, what? Verse 17 again. For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Secondly, notice also here, as we recall the events of the Exodus, who presides above and over Pharaoh? There's so much we could say here, but we've got to make sure we're clear on this. Did you even sense that as Ken was reading that account today? Maybe you remember our study in Exodus. What is so clear when you read Exodus. Jerry was teaching the class this morning downstairs if you're there. Who is the main character? It's God. He presides over the entire account. It's God. Yes, the sovereign, omnipotent God. Like the master, not only actor, but director over the entire thing, raising up Pharaoh. You just picture, by a word of God, Pharaoh come forth. Right? In fact, that word means to bring forward, raise up. 
In fact, I mean, these are providential tie-ins. I mean, Jerry, you'll appreciate this. That's literally what that means. Bring forward on a stage is what that word means. Incredible stuff to just bring Pharaoh forward. Now's your time. Now's your cue. Pharaoh, come forward. This is exactly what God is doing, Pharaoh. Now's your time to come forward. God brought Pharaoh forward for a purpose. It's the sovereign hand, the sovereign director that brings him forward and says, now I have raised you up for this moment. Which brings us to the third piece. This is my power. Do you see that? God says, don't miss that pronoun, my power. To the most powerful man in the world at the time, God says, this is my power. And not power around you? Where's the locale of the power in Pharaoh? Within you. Sovereign, omnipotent within Pharaoh. Don't miss this. It's so important. Verse 17, in you. Whatever God is doing with Pharaoh, and we'll see this confirmed in a moment in the book of Exodus. Whatever God is doing with Pharaoh, God is working to reveal his power in him. Not even just around him. Look at the text. In him. And that God's name, look at the purpose of that power, that God's name would be proclaimed. This is sovereign purpose and sovereign power within. To have external influence is one thing. The kings of the earth like to boast of their external power, don't they? External. But you know what's one thing the kings of the earth have no power over? Your heart. They have no power over it. They can't will your heart to do something, and they certainly can't harden your heart to do something, can they? Because they're the kings of the earth. And they're limited and finite. But what of this one? What of one with internal ability within your soul? Now, would that be power? That's sovereign power, right? So with those observations made on that verse, let's turn now to Exodus 9. Again, what Ken read for us this morning. Exodus 9. We're going earlier in the book than we went to. Remember, we were there... In 33 earlier, as Paul referenced. Now, we're not going to linger here, and I pray this is just self-evident. I already remarked that you just simply read this account, and it's so clear. God's hand is all over. Basically, God saying, what, this is going to happen, this is when it's going to happen, you do this, you do that. It's all God. All God. Now, as we make one or two more observations in this original text, we need to remark As many responding to this text do, they say, well, yes, God raised up Pharaoh, but that was after Pharaoh raised up himself. You've heard that. More than that, you'll recall the account in Exodus, right? And again, we've gone through this before. You've heard this say, God brought forth an even hardened Pharaoh's heart, but that was in response to what Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Now, more we're going to say about that in a moment. Is that fully true? There's truth there, but is it fully true? Let's look and see. First, the verse referenced by Paul, look at it in verse 16 of chapter 9. In the middle, by the way, notice the context of the seventh plague. So we're further on in the Moses-Pharaoh account. Verse 16, but for this purpose, Pharaoh, this is Moses to Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And remember, this is a scripture talking to Pharaoh, right? Which is the word of the Lord speaking to him. Now, so we're clear, not just on the overall tenor of this account. One thing we want to notice are some bookends. If we were to go to the eighth plague, right, in terms of what's going on in the eighth plague, we see the exact same thing. That's just after it. In verse 20, it says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
He did not let the people of Israel go. If we were to go backwards, and we could go to any number of these plagues, and just for time, we're just going to go to the first plague in chapter 7. And we're going to see this at the end of that first uh, plague. We see this. Pharaoh's heart, verse 22, remained hardened. Now that's interesting. That's a state that's ongoing there of Pharaoh. One other comment we need to make on some of these hardened references, it's in a passive voice. Pharaoh's heart is not only hardened, being hardened by external agency, but remaining hardened. Well, let's look at the beginning. Right before even the plagues begin, look at chapter 7, verse 3. This is, again, Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh, and they announce this, but I, this is Yahweh through Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. We just need to pause. I want you to look at those verses. Rather than getting in the weeds about Pharaoh's heart and who's doing what in Pharaoh's heart, again, who is the one sovereign over this entire event? It's God, isn't it? God is saying, this is happening. This will happen. This is what I'm going to do. In other words, God is saying, This is my word. This is my purpose. Watch it happen. That's the point. That's what Paul is referring to. God is sovereign. I'm going to come back to Pharaoh's heart in a moment because I know you're like, well, who? No, listen, let's keep to what Paul is referring to. God is sovereign over these events, including Pharaoh's heart. That is the point. Now, one more turn back before we leave this account. Look in chapter 4. This is the training up of Moses. And this is Yahweh, right? Uh, In all of this prelude information, look at what he says to Moses. And we'll look at this one final one in Exodus 4, 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, again, all preparatory, when you go back to Egypt, so he's not even in Egypt yet, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. In other words, who's the one doing? Pharaoh, or uh, Yahweh. On Pharaoh, but I will harden his, that's Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. Do you see that? So Yahweh has a purpose, right? Pharaoh's heart is involved with that purpose. And here Yahweh says, even before Moses is dispatched back into Egypt, this is what I'm going to do. And that's a lot there, and much more we could say, right? See that, only God, but we need to comment on two things before we leave this. Only God is sovereign in power over the human heart. It's not as if uh, Pharaoh has a casing around his heart, for the techno folks, a Faraday case around his heart that nothing can get to, right? This is the domain that he can't touch. No, everything is at Yahweh's disposal, even Pharaoh's heart, because he is the one that can take Hardened hearts of stone and turn them into what? Flesh, Ezekiel 36, 26. He is the only one in power that hardens the heart and further furthers it along its course of rebellion. Romans 9, 17. Pharaoh, the most powerful man of his time, yet at the mercy of the power of God, let's not miss this point, brought him forward with purpose to show God's power in him. Now, we do need to comment on this before we leave this account, because I don't want to leave you Hanging, and theologically, let's just keep all our ducks in a row. God 
hardened Pharaoh's heart, period, right? But listen, let's be reminded of something. Pharaoh was also, like you and me, a son ultimately of who? Adam, right? And what does that mean? What have we learned in Romans if Pharaoh is the son of Adam? It means while God had hardened his heart downstream, Pharaoh was already a rebel at heart, and thus with a hardened heart. Why? Because he had a fallen, corrupted DNA. He too thrice condemned when Pharaoh came out of his mother's womb. Thus, God hardening Pharaoh's heart is very different from God being responsible for Pharaoh's actions. Do you see that? In fact, if we just read the account again, if you were to read the plague accounts again, it's very clear who is responsible for not letting God's people go. Pharaoh. There's no question, right? Pharaoh is responsible. This paradox, like Jeremy was reminding us, and maybe you're thinking of it now, is this paradox at times between God being sovereign and man being responsible. The paradox doesn't make these two things untrue. It's for us to mind the compatibility of the two. And this is precisely, again, for those that were downstairs, like Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13, Acts 28, this is the great paradox in the work of God that we can't miss. Now, the point of this in Exodus is not an interesting side study, although for many it is that, right? That's not the point. Back to Romans. The point is precisely Paul's point in Romans 9, and it's this, verse 18, as you turn back there. Here it is, and you know it's purpose when he says a so then. So what's the point? So then? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It cannot be clear. A summative verse that wraps and caps all that we've covered. The word behind harden there, look at it, means to make unresponsive or unyielding. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? God did. Why did Pharaoh harden his heart? Because he rejected the words of the Lord. God hardened his heart, and God raised him up for the purpose of God's power. And Pharaoh hardened his heart against God under the sovereign hand of God. As God is sovereign in bestowing mercy, he's sovereign in hardening hearts. Again, notice such conditions are not conditioned on us at all, but on God's will. And do you see then the concert between these two passages? God's sovereign will is the reason why Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And it's the same reason why the word of God has not failed. God remains God. He's ordained a partial hardening on Israel. You can see that in Romans 11.25. And he's also ordained a full repentance. Chapter 11, verse 26. Thus the God of power and the God of mercy. God remains fully both. And such is our God. We need to leave it there. Pick it up next week, and I recognize there's just so much to digest here. That is more than enough for today, I understand. But I trust as we leave this place, we recognize that the mercy of God is always enough. You know, my prayer, I've been praying for each of you this week, is that you don't leave this room, either in a feather in your cap with a theological debate, or feeling really worked up because it wasn't preached the way you wanted it to be preached. 
I want to give you my heart here as we close. My prayer has been that you leave this room giving praise in God to his mercy on you. You should not be here. You were on that conveyor belt to hell, and you're no longer there anymore, are you? There's no time to debate. It's time to give the gospel to those that are not yet saved and to praise Almighty God that his mercy is so much more than us. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth that your mercy is sovereign. Oh, God, forgive us when we want to relegate this to trench warfare and make these things objects of debate. Lord, we pray that you would help us to just leave this place rejoicing that you are a merciful God. You are the God of mercy. And Oh, God, what can we say? Our sins are vast and immense. Father, we're reminded of our sin every day. But we must leave being reminded that your mercy is over and above our sin. In fact, your mercy is sovereign over it. So we thank you, God, for who you are and your work in that. In Christ's name, amen.